Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 15th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I'm going to present something titled The World of Hate Versus Love, John 15, 19. And I think I have the John 519 in the event, so that's a typographical error. After bringing our commentary on the Gospel of John to its completion last week, I thought perhaps it is appropriate to take a moment to hear from Clifton Emmerheiser. I am considering a commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, alternating with my planned commentary, commentary on the epistles of John. And I do not yet know which book I want to begin with first. Since, my, since beginning my New Testament commentaries with Matthew in 2011, I've been alternating between Old and New Testament books, so I will probably continue after that pattern. And I don't think I'll finish the entire Wisdom of Solomon at once, I might do that for a week or two and then switch to the first epistle of John and then go back and forth like that. That's what I'm thinking of doing. It's a little different, but I will get them both done. Yahweh willing. Here I am going to present and comment on a paper by Clifton Emmerheiser titled Who's Who in the World of Hate versus Love? for which Clifton used as its basis the words of Christ in John chapter 15, particularly verse 19. According to Clifton's records, this essay was written in April of 2012. While it may not be entirely possible for me to do, especially as Clifton himself had made the original presentation, I'm going to at least try to present this in a way which makes it palatable for denominational Christians. That's probably not going to work, but I'm going to try. One hurdle we have in bringing people to understand our Christian identity profession is where Judeo-Christians, or perhaps they would be better called denominational Christians, Believe that God is love, as the Apostle John had taught in 1 John chapter 4. But then they somehow misconstrue that teaching to believe that God is only love. The result is that these people then make love their God rather than love the God of the Bible. It is a form of idolatry by which they may as well be worshiping Venus, the pagan goddess of love, rather than Christ. However, confusing lasciviousness for love, many of these same people in their private lives often end up sacrificing themselves to Cupid. So we may see how Christian love is often confused with what the world says is love, 
And that in turn becomes perverted into an acceptance, if not an engagement in sodomy and fornication. These things, which the world calls love, God actually hates, and Jesus hates them too. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, said that we display our love for one another by keeping the commandments. That's true love. That's true Christian love. But when you attempt to tell a denominational Christian that God also hates those who violate his commandments, who transgress his law, they are difficult to convince because they have been interminably inculcated with the notion that God is love. The inculcation is so strong that when thinking that God is love, they generally do not consider that God is also many other things, among them being creator, lawgiver, father, judge, and king. To be a lawgiver and a judge, God is also a critic and a punisher. Here I use the word critic in the sense of its original meaning, which is from the Greek word criticus, an adjective form of the noun critis, which is a judge. A criticus is someone who can judge. So in order to be a judge, there must be things which God hates, and for doing those things, he punishes men. In Roman mythology, Cupid was born of Venus and Mars, the pagan god of war. So in essence, even the ancient pagans knew that you cannot have love without hate. We would not commend idolatry. But the ancient pagans certainly understood the world better than most of today's denominational Christians. We read in Isaiah chapter 13, in the word of Yahweh God, just one of the many consistent promises of what he will do to sinners. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Denominational Christians often reply that the Old Testament God is mean-spirited and even call him hateful, but that Jesus has mercy and forgiveness. They fail to understand that the mercy and forgiveness which is in Jesus was promised only to a certain people by that same Old Testament God 
on the condition that they repent of their sins. Repenting from sin requires a cessation of the sinful activity. However, many denominational Christians do not seem to understand that. Then again, they are also inculcated with misconceptions of the scope of the mercy and forgiveness of Christ. It is clear, even in the New Testament, that Jesus will not have mercy or forgiveness on all people. The same judgment which is described in Isaiah is also described in the Revelation in chapter 19, where it begins with a description of Christ at his promised return. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. Christ is the real God of war. The God of the Old Testament is the real God of war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That same Old Testament God. That mean-spirited, hateful God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, that Old Testament God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Almighty God is that same Old Testament God who had promised to destroy the wicked. The Word of God, which is Christ, is found in the words of that Old Testament God. And Christ came to uphold his commandments. As he himself had said, that till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He was not speaking merely of what is finished at the cross, but of the passing of heaven and earth, of the final day of the judgment and wrath of God. For example, as it is described by Peter in his first epistle, which was written over 30 years after the cross, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It is true that God is love, but God also hates. And all Christians should inquire into the word of God to see what it is that he loves and what it is that he hates. Lest in that day they may be found on the wrong side regardless of what church they go to or what they claim to believe. As we read in Matthew chapter 7, in the words of Christ himself, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, 
But he that does the will, the will, not he who believes in Jesus. That's not what Christ said. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, many will believe in Jesus. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? To do that, you must believe in Jesus. And in thy name have cast out devils? To do that, you must believe in Jesus. And in thy name done many wonderful works. To do that, you must believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. You must do the will of his father, the laws of that Old Testament God. The Apostle Jude, the brother of Christ, wrote in his epistle in reference to the sinners of his own time. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaks great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. In other words, they kiss up, the, kiss, kiss up to men. They kiss the asses of men. They prop men up on pedestals because they gain an advantage by it. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time. Both Peter and Paul said this. Jude must be referring to their epistles. Who should walk after their own godly, ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves or who more properly make divisions for themselves. Sensual not having the spirit. The same Jesus, in reference to whom Jude had written those words, had himself told the world that the God of the Old Testament was his father. And he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. A man who lies with a man shall die. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The law regulated who we should marry and who we should not. A woman should be flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone. These words, which I've just read, are from the same passage in John chapter 15 from which Clifton found the basis for this paper. Who's who in the world of hate versus love? Citing John 15, 19 by Clifton Emmeheiser. 
And he begins by saying, it is glaringly clear that from time immemorial, the world and Christianity have two opposing criterion. And he has a parenthetical remark here that criterion means a means of judging. Two opposing criterion to define the scope of love and hate. Here Clifton is not speaking of Christianity in the sense of the denominational Christianity which is found in the churches, but in the sense of true apostolic Christianity, the sort of Christianity which is found in the teachings and gospel of Christ. Every denomination assumes they are one and the same, yet they all have differences with one another. They are certainly not the same. No denominational church has doctrines which line up at all with the words of Christ and the apostles. They are not the same, and the gospel of Christ betrays them all in one way or another. So Clifton proceeds by asking, in order for every Christian to have absolutely no doubt in their mind as to the biblical positions of hate and love, I will now quote Christ at John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, because you can't make a sermon on just one verse, not without citing many other verses. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and they weren't Jews, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will also keep yours. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. In other words, they have no excuses. He that hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not, they had, not had sin. But now have they seen and hated both me and my father. But that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. There is much that can be said of this passage. As it clearly conflicts with the denominational Christian teachings and interpretations of John 3.16. But what they fail to realize is that the world is not the planet. And there is a world which God created. And that is the world which he loves. Then there is a world which lies in wickedness. As the same apostle John stated in his first epistle. And that is the world which hates Christ and his disciples. Christ did not come to save that world. James tells Christians that they must despise that world. But he did come to save the world which he had created. 
So Clifton makes an assertion, which on the surface seems to have nothing to do with sin. But if the historical context is examined, it has everything to do with ancient sins that had been committed and which have never yet been repented of at any time. Clifton says, there is positively no way one can comprehend this passage unless one establishes and differentiates the ye, who the ye and the they are. The ye are a small number of Christians representing a smattering of two of the 12 tribes of Israel. While they, the they, represents the Edomites who were converted to the religion of the Judahites, recorded by Josephus in Antiquities Book 13, quoting Josephus. Hitler says, Hitler said, I'm sorry, he's going to talk about Hitler later in his podcast, and I have that on my mind. Quoting Josephus, Clifton says, Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marisa, cities of Edomia, and subdued all the Edomians and permitted them to stay in that country if they would circumcise their genitals and make use of the laws of the Jews or Judeans properly. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their Edomite, Clifton's interjection, of their forefathers, that they submitted to the use of circumcision and the rest of the Jewish ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were hereafter no other than Jews. A footnote on the same page makes the following comment. These are Clifton's words. This account of the Edomians admitting circumcision and the entire Jewish law, which should technically be Judean, from this time or from the days of Hyrcanus, is confirmed by their entire history afterwards. This, in the opinion of Josephus, made them proselytes of justice or entire Jews. In other words, Josephus, having been raised a Pharisee, he was raised a Pharisee, he went into, um, he was from a family of priests, he went as a teenager to become, well, a young man at that time, but we would consider him a teenager today, to become an Essene. And I believe in his writing, in his biography, in his autobiography, he spent three years with the Essenes and ultimately decided to go back and become a Pharisee. So the Pharisees of the time accepted proselytes and believed that when they circumcised them and baptized them in water, that when they pulled them up out of the water, they were somehow magically, mystically changed, transmogrified into Israelites, which simply is not true. There is no um, prescription for that anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. It's bullshit. So Whiston's footnote continues. This, in the opinion of Josephus, made them proselytes of justice or entire Jews. However, Antigonus, the enemy of Herod, though Herod were derived from such a 
proselyte injustice for several generations will allow him to be no more than half a Jew. Ammonius, a grammarian, an early Greek writer, says the Jews are such by nature and from the beginning, whilst the Edomians are not Jews from the beginning, but being afterwards subdued by the Jews and compelled to be circumcised and to unite into one nation and be subject to the same laws, they were called Jews. Dio, Dio, an early, I believe, second century AD Roman historian, and I haven't read Dio. Dio also says, that country is also called Judea, and the people Jews, and it should be Judeans. And this name is given also to as many as embrace their religion, though of other nations, the proselytes of the Pharisees. Now Clifton has a short note. Actually, Herod was a full Edomite. In the footnote, Whiston, a product of the Church of England, considered proselytes of the Judeans, along with Josephus, to be proselytes of justice. However, it is clear in the gospel that Christ considered such converts of the Judeans to be twice fold the children of hell, as he had told the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Furthermore, Josephus attested several times in his writings that Herod was an Edomite on both sides of his family, mother and father, making him a full-blooded Edomite. But evidently, Antigonus, who was also a product of his own time, considered Herod a half-Judean, merely for being a convert. From the second century before Christ, from after 129 BC, which is the period in which these events recorded by Josephus had happened, the Judeans believed that they could convert aliens to Judaism and that they would be accepted by God, even though that was contrary to the law and had been thoroughly repudiated in the books of both Ezra and Nehemiah less than 400 years before. Actually, Ezra probably about 330 years before John Hyrcanus. Here, Clifton only cited one instance of these forced mass conversions of Canaanites and Edomites to Judaism, while Josephus records others later on in Antiquities, Book 13. Just over 30 years later, in the time of Alexander Janius, one of the successors of John Hyrcanus. Josephus wrote that he had defeated and converted the non-Israelite inhabitants of at least 30 other towns or regions in Palestine, 30 others, not just Dora and Marisa. Dora and Marisa were significant towns at the time, but that's only two towns. Dora being ancient Dor on the coast, the coast of the land of Manasseh, and Marisa being Marishah, a town of Judah before the Babylonian destruction of Judah. 
Alexander Janius, 30 years later, converted the inhabitants of at least 30 other towns and regions in Palestine. Once the Romans had come around 63 BC and subjected Judea and made it into a single kingdom and later a province, all of the other inhabitants were ultimately converted to Judaism and united under the Edomite king Herod. Another historian, Strabo, in book 16 of his geography, written about 70 or 80 years before Josephus, Strabo died in 25 AD perhaps, had also attested that Judeans and Edomians or Edomites, as well as others, were all living together in Judea and sharing in the same customs. So Clifton attempts to explain how this can lead us to understand the difference between the you and the them or they in that passage from John chapter 15. Now we know why Christ said their law inasmuch as the Edomites agreed to keep them. Although Christ knew they really couldn't keep the law because Esau mixed his genetics, his seed, with Hittite women, making all of his children bastards or children of adultery, breaking Yahweh's law of kind after kind. For this very reason, it recorded Yahweh's hatred for Esau in Malachi chapter 1, from verse 2. I have loved you, saith Yahweh. Yet ye say, yet ye say wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith Yahweh. Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. The distinction between Jacob and Esau goes back a lot further than Malachi. And Esau was diminished on account of his sin of race mixing long before the time of Malachi. Esau was the eldest of two sons. Yet even before they were born or committed any sin, as Paul of Tarsus had explained, Yahweh God said to Rebekah, that two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 3. So even though they were brothers, it was prophesied that ultimately the result would be that they become two manner or different kinds of people. How did that happen? If you have two sons and one of them marries a woman of the same general racial stock as you, and the other one goes and marries a Negro, don't you think that their children are going to be very different from one another? That you've spawned two different kinds or two manner of people? This is exactly how it happened. So then in Genesis chapter 27, after seeing that her son Esau had taken wives of the accursed Hittites, Rebekah said to Isaac in verse 46, 
I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, the daughters of the Hittites that Esau took wives from. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? In other words, if both your sons marry negresses, your seed is dead and your life doesn't do you any good because nobody's going to carry on your name. Nobody worthy. As a result, Isaac turned to Jacob, who had already received the blessings and the birthright of his father and elder brother, and we read, because Isaac realizes why that happened. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. The Hittites, if you read Genesis chapter 10, were a branch of the Canaanites. Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, which is far to the north, a couple of hundred miles to the north, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty, if Jacob takes wives of his own stock, and God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham, which should have belonged to the older brother, but he blew it, to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. The result of the scripture is the account of the results of Jacob having received the blessing of Abraham because he obeyed what his father had told him. But Clifton continues by discussing God's hatred for Esau. And he says, now, before we get all bent out of shape over this passage where Yahweh declares his hatred for Esau, which Paul repeated to the Romans, so it's valid in the New Testament, let's take into consideration David's psalm. Psalm 137, verse 7 and 9, pertaining to the Edomites, and whether or not it falls into the category of hatred. And Psalm 137, verses 7 and 9 say, Remember, O Yahweh, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes thy little ones, meaning the children, the babies of the children of Edom, and dashes thy little ones against the stones. Now, here Clifton made a mistake attributing the 137th Psalm to David. In the King James Version, <clears throat> and apparently <clears throat> in the Masoretic text, the prefaces on the Psalms were not always preserved. In the Greek manuscripts of the Septuagint, some 
begin this psalm, they preface this psalm with the words, for David, while others have, for David from Jeremiah. That is not necessarily Jeremiah the prophet. The opening line of the psalm implies that it was written by the waters of Babylon by a Judahite who was taken captive as a lamentation over Jerusalem and Zion, the city of David. So the psalm was written in commemoration for David or to David. In that manner, the reference is an actual historical reference as the Edomites were confederates of the Babylonians when they destroyed Jerusalem, 586 B.C. There's another witness. There are actually several other witnesses. I didn't turn to the ancient inscriptions. The apocryphal book of 1 Esdras, it's found in the Septuagint. It's found in the King James Version Apocrypha. It's a better copy of Ezra than what we have in the Masoretic text. And 1 Esdras affirms this. In 1 Esdras chapter 4, verse 45, we read where it is speaking of the time of Zerubbabel, thou also hast vowed to build up the temple, which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees, which are the Babylonians. So that's two witnesses that the Edomites were in league with the Babylonians, and it was the Edomites who destroyed the Temple of Solomon. Where God had told Rebekah that the elder shall serve the younger, the Edomites were subject to Israel for several centuries from the time of David, but revolted and broke free, later submitting to and being in league with the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem. The Edomites were rewarded for their treachery, since, as it is also prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 35, after Israel and Judah were taken into captivity, the Edomites moved north and took most of their then uninhabited cities for themselves. From that time, southern Israel and Judah became known as Edomia. It actually moved. It moved on the map because the Edomites picked up and moved north. Those are the people John Hyrcanus and Alexander Janius had later defeated and forced to convert to Judaism. And according to Josephus, they were happy to do so. Before John Hyrcanus, and this is why they were happy, before John Hyrcanus, the book of the Maccabees describes how the high priests who were before him had constantly tried to drive them out, even burning their cities to the ground but they repeatedly returned. So John Hyrcanus changed that policy and began converting them instead, making thousands upon thousands of them twice fold the children of hell. Oddly, Christian continues, Clifton, I'm sorry, oddly, Clifton continues his discussion of the 137th Psalm by quoting a translation of the Septuagint 
And it has the preface informing us that it was written to David by Jeremiah. But Clifton must have overlooked it. I know this because I have Clifton's copy of Thompson's Septuagint on the shelf next to my desk. However, since I edited practically all of, Christian, uh, all of Clifton's writing, I must accept at least partial blame for the oversight. So I apologize for that. So Clifton continues. Charles Thompson, Charles Thompson's Septuagint, and Clifton has a note in here. Charles Thompson was the secretary of the Continental Congress sometime during the Revolutionary War. That would be probably in the 1770s for the most part. Charles Thompson's Septuagint has this to say on Psalm 137, verses 7 and 9. And it really has nothing to say. It's only Charles Thompson's translation of the Greek. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom, who in the day of Jerusalem said, Raise, raise, down to its foundation. Happy he shall, happy he shall, he who, I'm sorry, this is a tongue twister, I don't know why. Happy he who shall render thee thy recompense for what thou hast done to us. Happy he who shall seize and dash thy infants against the stones. Clifton then responds, now don't get mad at me. I didn't write the Bible. The Edomite Jews' own version of the Masoretic text reads at Psalm 137, verses 7 and 9, and Clifton's basically repeating the same passage, but from a translation made by the Jewish Publication Society of America, not the King James Version. Remember, O Lord, against the children of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the, to the foundations thereof. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes thy little ones against the rock. So Clifton responds and says, so the Jewish Publication Society of America has published their own demise, which will yet come to pass because, as we know in Christian identity, the Jews are the descendants of Esau, Edom. Early Christians used the Septuagint, or something very close to what we call the Septuagint today. Most citations of the Old Testament, which are found in the New Testament, are from the Septuagint. So the apostles used the Septuagint as their authority for Scripture. That the Masoretic text is not a perfect copy of the ancient scriptures is proven in the citations of Josephus. For example, it's proven in other ways as well. And it can be established that neither the Masoretic text nor the Septuagint are perfect. What we call the Masoretic text usually refers to the Leningrad Codex or also to the Aleppo Codex both of which date only to the 10th century. That's it. A thousand years after Christ, the oldest 
so-called Jewish Bibles a thousand years after Christ, they are the oldest copies of the Masoretic text, which were considered to be complete, although it is now reported that portions of the Aleppo Codex have been missing since 1947. So just imagine what happened in history in 1947, and you'll figure out what happened to those portions. <laughs> Clifton continues in his response to the words of the psalm. When commenting on Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, most unenlightened Christians will reply, the Lord didn't really hate Esau, and it's just that he didn't love Esau as much as he loved Jacob. Well, I say, and these are Clifton's words, pile it higher and higher. In other words, that's bullshit. The word hated in verse 3 is sane, Strong's number 8130 in Strong's Hebrew Dictionary. And it, it is a primitive root meaning to hate, to hate personally. In the case of Leah and Rachel, Jacob's wives, the same word is used indicating that Jacob hated Leah, but Yahweh opened her womb. Jacob loved Rachel, of course. Clifton says, but the context of Malachi chapter 1, verse 3 is more like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where it says, Know therefore that Yahweh thy God, he is God, the thankful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay him to his face. Where Paul quoted Malachi chapter 1 verse 3, in Romans chapter 9, the word he used for hate in Greek, which is probably from the Septuagint, I haven't, I didn't go and check it before this presentation. This is an interpolation into my notes. But the word that Paul used for hate means hate. It's the opposite of love in Greek. Miseo, it means to hate, just like we use the English term hate today, to despise, to hate, to revile, whatever. It means to hate. It doesn't mean to love less. The prophecy of the opening chapter of Malachi, that God would destroy, destroy the desolate places rebuilt by Esau, has never been fulfilled. When Jerusalem was rebuilt in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, Israel did the rebuilding, not Edom. So it was not fulfilled in 70 AD because when the Edomites were converted to Judaism, Judea was not desolate. It was well inhabited. But how could Edom return and build the desolate places? Only because it was the Edomites who were the Jews that were run out of Judea by the Romans. Otherwise, Edom 
doesn't have to return anywhere if it wasn't them who were run out of Judea by the Romans. And it is the Edomites who returned to rebuild the desolate places in the modern age of Zionism, founding the state of Israel officially, I think in 1947. So now you know, now you might know how those Aleppo codexes went missing, those manuscripts from the Alexa, Aleppo Codex. I don't know that the two events are really connected, but as the Jews gained power in the region, yes, I believe that's probably what happened. They had other treachery as well once they got their hands on the Dead Sea Scrolls, which that didn't happen until 1967, because the Dead Sea Scrolls from the time of their discovery until 1967 were kept in a Rockefeller-owned museum on the West Bank. And the West Bank remained under the control of the Jordanians, of the Arabs, until 1967, when the Jews gained control of it through their little six-day war. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were shut off from the public for 25 years, and apparently, and we have testimony concerning this, some of them came up missing during that 25 years. Now Clifton explains why God hates Esau. Arrogantly, Esau, and we've already shown and discussed here the scriptures that support this. Arrogantly, Esau, brother of Jacob, imagined he could marry alien Hittite women, and his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, descendants of white Shem and Peleg, should accept them and any children born to those evil females. And he has an, a parenthetical remark here um, comparing the Hittites to modern Jews. Narrow between the eyes and ugly protruding noses similar to Barbara Streisand and Jimmy Durante. He says that should teach us a lesson today that we dare not race mix and produce bastard offspring and still expect to be blessed of Yahshua Christ. The words of the song are untrue, as Jesus doesn't love all the children of the world, red or yellow, black or white. The truth is, Yahshua Christ loves only the white children of Israel. There is no greater hate than for a pure white person to engage in miscegenation, race mixing, with an alien race. It's tantamount to spitting in the face of one's father and mother, as well as the face of the Almighty. We know that Clifton's explanation of why God hates Esau is true, because it is the same reason given by Paul of Tarsus in his epistle to the Hebrews. There, in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul wrote as a warning that Christians should be found looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, now the first time that was used in scripture was in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be, so Paul's warning against this, lest there be any fornicator or profane person now that word profane 
It's a Greek word meaning something trodden underfoot, something that was um, used in common, something that was not holy and set apart. The word holy means set apart and dedicated to God in its Greek meaning. The word hagios, sanctified, holy, something set apart and dedicated to God is the opposite of that word for profane, which is something that's used in common. In other words, it's not sanctified. So, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, he would have inherited the blessing. He was rejected for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. He was rejected by his own mother. His own mother made sure her heart troubling her on account of the Hittite women that Esau had married. Her heart troubling her on account of the daughters of Heth, she made sure Jacob got the blessing. And then she made sure Jacob sent, Isaac sent Jacob to their ancient homeland to get a wife from the women of his own race, of his own kin. And along with that, Isaac told him if he did that, if he took a wife from his own people, he would inherit the blessings of Abraham, not Esau. Esau was first in line, the elder son. His own mother rejected him. Fornication is defined by Jude as the going after of strange flesh in reference to the fallen angels, the angels who left their first estate, Genesis chapter 6, without a doubt, an event concerning race mixing. And Paul used the same word to describe that same sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, referring to the time in Numbers chapter 25, where the men of Israel joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. Once again, without a doubt, it's in reference to race mixing. That is what Esau did, and we know that from the words of his own mother in Genesis chapter 27, which we have already cited. So in Romans chapter 9, Paul prayed for the Israelites in Judea, but he explained that they are not all Israel which are of Israel, and said, that his prayer was only for his kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertains, this is the New Testament, this is 25 years after the cross of Christ. Things didn't change with Jesus. This is 25 years. Paul's writing his epistle to the Romans, 57 57 AD, it might have been early 58. I'm pretty sure it was 57 AD. It might have been 58. That's why I'm hesitating. I can't quite remember. But 
in any event, it's at least 25 years after the cross of Christ, things haven't changed. Paul's kinsmen are according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains, in other words, it doesn't pertain to anybody else, the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. So even Paul asserted that those things were only for Israel according to the flesh, not some bullshit spiritual Israel. And he went on to compare Jacob and Esau, discounting the Edomites because they were in Israel, but they were not of Israel. And if Paul didn't know the same thing that Josephus knew and the same thing that Strabo knew and Dio and the other sources that William Whiston quoted, then why would he even make that comparison? Why would he even say these things? So it's certainly true, according to Paul of Tarsus, that those disbelieving Judeans, the ancestors of today's Jews, were Esau, they weren't Jacob. So later in the chapter, he repeated the words of Malachi, that God hates Esau, and he referred to the Israelites as vessels of mercy, but to the Edomites as vessels of destruction. So even in the New Testament, God continues to hate Esau, for this reason, Christ told his adversaries in John chapter 10, but you believe not because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, the people of Judea who turned to Christ, who heard him, the sheep who heard his voice, lost their identity as Judeans, becoming one in Christ with Greek and Roman Christians. But those who rejected Christ, who rejected him because they were not his sheep in the first place, as he had told them on several occasions, they retained their identity as Judeans. They continued to be Judeans. And later in history, they began to be called Jews. Today, Christians are wrongly taught that these Jews are God's chosen people, while Jews themselves hate the name of that same God and use their self-proclaimed status to rule the world. What did Christ say about the so-called princes of this world? The apostles lived in fear of the Jews, as John had written on several occasions. And today the Jews profess to be the critics or judges of everything that is right and wrong promoting what God hates and despising what God loves. So Clifton continues. We are told that Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isn't it ironic today that if a white person loves and honors his own race, that the enemies of Christ call it hate or a security threat group? I'll explain that in a moment. Does that mean that if we would kill our own father and mother, that we would be that that would be love? 
This is what the killers of Christ, the Edomite Jews, would have us to believe. Throughout the time of his prison ministry, Clifton's ministry was essentially a prison ministry. He only had, um, if I remember correctly, about 40 maybe people on the street that he delivered his um, people on the street, people in the free world, people not in prison, that he delivered his monthly teaching letters to. I think his, his mailing list was only about 40 people, maybe a few more. But at one point, he had 600 prisoners that he sent out his teaching letters to every single month, and he sent them for free for many years until he realized that some prisoners got mail just because they liked to get mail and really didn't care about his writing. So he cut that list by asking prisoners for 10 postage stamps a year, which didn't even cover his postage cost, but he wanted the prisoners to have to want to get his teaching letters. So I actually was in prison and helped Clifton set that price. If a prisoner can't afford 10 postage stamps through the course of an entire year, well, then he doesn't really need to be getting mail at all. That sounds mean to somebody that doesn't know about prison, but I've been there. I know. So throughout the time of his prison ministry, most of the people who received Clifton's watchman's teaching letters and who corresponded with him regularly were prisoners, myself included. So during that time, as he corresponded with prisoners, or especially as he received new requests to be added to his list by prisoners in certain states, Washington, Oregon, Michigan, Kentucky, Indiana, they were all the, the um, states that I remember that it was very difficult for Clifton to get mail into. When he sent mailings to prisoners in certain states, his material came back as rejected for a reason that Christian identity in general was categorized by the um, prison officials as a security threat group, just as it is by various government agencies. Of course, this is all in spite of the fact that many more Jews, Muslims, and even Roman Catholics have committed heinous and violent crimes in the names of their religions. But the government was much, much more afraid of some little old barber in rural Ohio, which is incredible. <laughs> I think it's funny, but it's incredible. The government was more afraid of the writings of a little old barber in rural Ohio. They claimed Arabs blew up 9-11. Christian identity followers didn't blow up the Twin Towers. <laughs> Christian identity followers didn't shoot up military bases in Kentucky and Florida the last couple of years. Wow. 
The Jews did 9-11. So Judaism should be a security threat group. For some reason, fortunately, I was able to do my own writing and correspond with Clifton for over 11 years with only minor interruption. And, and that actually only happened once at the very end of my time. So Christian identity today is considered hate, even under circumstances where, where there is no expression of hatred for other races, be they Jews or not, just to profess that you're even British Israel is considered hate. Simply for the fact that we love and prefer our own people, our own race, and recognize them as the children of God, we are hated. But the Jews can falsely claim to be God's chosen people and assert for themselves a virtual um, immunity to charges of racism because of my Holocaust, and it is not considered hate. But as for the Jews, since denominational Christians have accepted their claim that they are God's chosen people, Christians now virtually worship Jews instead of Jesus. Yet the scriptures tell us to reject Jews and to love our own brethren. So Clifton continues in that aspect, and he says, My Bible tells me that if I don't love my brother, I haven't seen the light. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, from verse 9. He that saith he is in the light and hates his racial, Clifton interjects that, his racial brother is in darkness, even until now. He that loves his racial brother abides in light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his racial brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. When it says brother here, it is speaking of one's white Caucasian Israelite brother. What did you think it meant, for goodness sake? This amounts to Christian racism, pure and simple, and Christ is our example to keep our Israelite genetics undiluted. And this is true, as where Paul had prayed for the unbelieving Judeans, he prayed only for those who were my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, not my brethren and my kinsmen, but my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, right there. Those who are Israelites, right there. Paul counted his brethren, his kinsmen, as those who were directly related to him by blood, according to the flesh, and not merely those who were believers with him in the same religion. If Paul was praying only for believers, which the context of Romans shows that he was not, if Paul was praying only for believers, he wouldn't have had to pray for Israelites at all because he was praying for those who didn't believe. So that proves that Paul thought of his brethren as those who were directly related to him by blood because they didn't believe. That's why Paul was praying for them. They were kinsmen and brethren in spite of the fact 
that they continued to reject Christ, for which reason he prayed for them. The Christians, which Paul had called brethren in his other epistles, or elsewhere in his epistles. He understood to be descendants of the so-called lost tribes of Israel. As he professed in Acts chapter 26 and elsewhere that his ministry was to bring the gospel to them, Paul never considered the Edomites of Judea as brethren. He never considered the Edomites. He called them vessels of destruction. He neglected to pray for them. His brethren, his kinsmen, are according to the flesh. So now Clifton continues from another perspective, endeavoring to prove the importance of the biblical concept of racial purity. Christ, in his Sermon on the Mount, announced to his Israelite followers that they were the salt of the earth. At Matthew 5.13, thusly, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of man. Now, Clifton makes a very apt comparison here, a very apt allegory, and I believe it's accurate. I don't know if I'd have went here. Here, Clifton, from this point in his paper, goes to a few places that I would not have gone if I'd have written the same essay. However... We're following Clifton's work and reviewing Clifton's work, so that's fine. He could go where he wants to. <laughs> we'll follow along. Okay. Christ is saying as much as saying if one has committed miscegenation by mixing one's race with an alien, the product of that mixing is good for nothing. What conscientious grandfather or grandmother would want a good-for-nothing grandchild. Yahweh knows they deserve better, and so does the rebellious white Israelite race mixer. The only way that salt can lose its savor is to mix it with a foreign substance. What's so hard to understand about that? Got any of those good-for-nothings in your family tree? It appears that Yahshua Christ was a real hate-monger, or is the fornicator, the race mixer, is it the fornicator who is the real hate monger? Because those who love God and who love their brethren keep the commandments. They don't break them. Denominational Christians may protest and assert that Christ was speaking in reference to his teaching or to faith. But the faith of Christianity, as Paul had explained it in Romans chapter 4, is the faith which Abraham had that his offspring would become many nations and inherit the earth, among other things. The apostles brought the gospel to those nations, and now they await the return of Christ where they shall inherit the earth. Christ, having taught his disciples that they must keep his commandments. Race-mixing fornication is a transgression of the law, as the first century Judeans were mingled among the Edomites, 
who were bastards. For that reason, Paul of Tarsus, in that same chapter of Hebrews, where he said that Esau was a fornicator, warned that if one is without chastisement, the correction which results when a father punishes a son, then one is a bastard and not a son. Christ said, ye, you are the salt, speaking to a group of people that he had never interviewed. He doesn't know. Well, he's God. He does know. But they didn't profess for themselves whether or not they believed him. Not one person there before Christ said that is recorded, except for perhaps for the apostles, but at the Sermon on the Mount, He's speaking to a multitude of people. Not one person there is it recorded that they profess that I believe in Jesus. There is no Christian gospel yet when Christ said those words. Ye are the salt of the earth. The people are the salt, not the gospel, not the belief, not the religion, not the faith. The people. And when they lose their savor, when they become mixed and no longer good for food because nobody wants to eat salt mixed with alien elements when they lose their savor they're good for nothing but to be trampled on by men to be trampled on to be that that word was used to describe something which was common something which was not sanctified the same concept was used metaphorically to describe that same thing. Clifton continues on the subject of salt and describes the Greek word which the King James Version translates as lost its savor in Matthew chapter 5 verse 13. Because lost its savor, this is a metaphorical use of this verb. It's not the literal meaning. The Greek word for the phrase lost its savor is Strong's number 3471, a verb. It's actually morahino, morahino, derived from morus. Morus means foolish. Strong's number 3474. Morahino means to make foolish or dull or insipid, quoting Clifton. The word morahino is derived from morus, which is foolish, to make dull, not acute, citing the New Testament word study by Spiros Sodiates. Isn't this exactly what happens to the offspring due to committing miscegenation? A child dull of spirit, mentally deficient. Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon on this same word, has, in part, in Biblical Greek, to make foolish. What could be more foolish than producing a half-breed mamzer? Mamzer, the Hebrew word for bastard. What could be more foolish than producing a half-breed mamzer by breaking Yahweh's law of kind after kind? What could be more foolish than what Esau had done? Mixing his race and losing his birthright. His selling his birthright to Jacob was only a ceremony commemorating the act. It only officiated the act. He had already lost his birth, birthright by taking Hittite wives. He'd already thrown it away. That only proves that he despised it. 
well, I lost my birthright. I'm not going to get it. I already mixed my race. I got a bunch of bastards, so I may as well get a few bucks out of it. Or a bowl of pottage. Clifton asks, when are we going to wake up and realize that Christ is using salt as a metaphor for genetics? In Matthew 5.13, Christ was also prophesying that as long as the salt had not lost its saltiness, had not become foolish, corruption would be hindered from growing out of control. But once the salt had become diluted due to miscegenation, moral corruption would grow unrestrained. That is what we see happening on a significant scale today. One must be blind in order not to see that the Jews in this last century have instigated all of our major wars, have introduced all sorts of filth and pornography into media and entertainment, led the parade for feminism and so-called reproductive rights and civil rights, and Jews had been the principal actors and agitators behind communism, internationalism, globalism, open borders, and every other method of attack against white Christian society. To do this, the Jews secularized society by abusing Christian laws and documents and exploiting Christian courts, or once Christian courts, in order to remove God and Christ from the public notice from the schools and from all branches of government. And then, as a people, we began our slide over the precipice into oblivion and Sodom and Gomorrah. Speaking of our wars, Clifton says, and I don't know why he went here. I wouldn't have gone here, but that's okay. <laughs> That's okay to show, and, and this is why I had Hitler on my mind, to show the reader that this is the correct context of what Christ conveyed to his followers. I will relate an incident that happened when Germany invaded Leningrad, and then he has in... in, in brackets Stalingrad, but that's not true, during World War II. From uk.answers.yahoo.com, and I'll link this, it's still online, we read, why did Germany invade Poland in 1939? Now, this is a website where one person asks a question, usually a dumb question. This one isn't dumb, it's just dumb to ask it there, but that's okay. It's a question. Why did Germany invade Poland in 1939? And then whoever reads the question, a bunch of people answer it. And some of the answers are really, really stupid, and some of them are pretty good. Um, usually there's answers in there from revisionists that I'm surprised even are still there, but they're still there after four, five, six years. This one answer that Clifton cited is 10 years old. Now, this essay is eight years old. So the question is, why did Germany invade Poland? And Clifton made, um, he took a piece of one of the answers. A and I wouldn't have gone here for this, but I, I guess Clifton thought that it suited his purpose at the time. And 
the part of one of the answers. A superstate was well within Hitler's grasp, but guessing wrongly attacking Stalingrad and ignoring the basic laws concerning the welfare of mankind, then sending in the hated SS meant he lost everything. If you watch old newsreels, you'll see German troops were welcomed as heroes with flowers, bread, and salt. So, I would bet Clifton was searching around the internet for salt and things to, to, to link to our race, and he found this, and he just ran with it. And <laughs> that's okay. I, I, I don't know why Clifton chose this obscure source to try to make his point. The full answer is still available at its original source, and I will link it here when I post the notes to this podcast. But I will also include a screen capture in case it does disappear. I hate relying on other websites on the internet to still be there a year or two years or five years after I make a link to them. The source is not scholarly. And some of the answers are foolish or very incomplete. But there are some later ones which are better and do reflect the actual truth. However, in Clifton's citation, he provided the original question and only part of a single answer. If I had to guess why he did this, it was to show the value of salt, especially in a time of war. But in his own answer, he takes that a step further to a different level to something that wasn't meant by the original author. I wouldn't have done this. I, I should have probably been um, more diligent when I edited this paper. I'm sure I edited this paper. I mean, I don't remember exactly what I was doing in April of 2012, but I'm sure I probably edited this paper. I should have been a little better at it. Clifton responds and says, although the above quotation is written from a Bolshevik Jewish perspective, and it certainly is, it does show that some of the inhabitants of Leningrad looked upon the German soldiers as the salt of the earth, and that they had come to preserve their, Leningrad's, way of life. Indeed, a significant number of the German soldiers were pure-blooded Israelites, and they were fighting to preserve their Aryan race. The original reply, which Clifton cited to the question, why did Hitler attack Poland, rambled on to describe, and Clifton quoted from like the third paragraph of it, rambled on to describe the later Battle of Stalingrad, a city formerly named Tsaritsyn, and it's in Russia, and so is Leningrad in Russia. So the writer did not say those things in relation to the initial attack on Poland. And Clifton further confounded that with Leningrad, Stalingrad, Leningrad, Leningrad is the former St. Petersburg. Clifton confounded that, those two cities, in his assessment of the answer. The German armies failed to capture either city, the battle for Stalingrad failing and ending in the surrender of the, the um, wow, shameful surrender of the German Sixth Army after only five months, although they held Leningrad under siege for two and a half years from 42 to 44. However, Germany did capture and occupy for several years the Ukraine, Belarus, and the Baltic Republics, 
where the German armies were seen as restorers of Christianity and saviors from communism. And the communist governments were all dominated by Jews since the very beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. Poland was attacked for several reasons, but mostly to deliver the inhabitants of the German city of Danzig, which was forcibly removed and given to Poland after the First World War. From Polish violence and oppression, the Poles were constantly harassing the inhabitants of Danzig. Some reports state, I, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, that the Poles had killed up to 30,000 of them. The English were agitating the Poles to commit atrocities against the German population of Danzig in hopes of igniting a war with Germany, which Hitler did not want, but to which he finally relented. However, where salt is concerned, which is why we have this digression, because that article mentioned salt and Clifton, <laughs> it just lit up that maybe perhaps he could defend his um, fellow Germans because Clifton was also um, very aware of the true heroes and the true culprits of the Second World War. I guess he felt that need and he had an opportunity to do so, so he, he took off with it. So where salt is concerned, Clifton does better. He says, salt is a big subject, and there are over 14,000 uses for it. Actually, 14,001, they sell these stupid little salt guns that you could shoot bugs with. <laughs> They're pretty useless. There are over 14,000 uses for it. Salt can be found in liquid brine, in liquid form as brine, and in solid or halite form. Christ was referring to the halite form in his sermon. Of the halite form, the purer salt was used for eating. Salt basically had to be as pure as possible to use for eating or for preservation of food, its other large use. While the impure or insipid type was used in walking and wagon paths, no doubt to impede the growth of weeds. We have somewhat the same use for halite salt today. Like in Christ's time, the pure halite is used for eating, while the impure halite is used to spread on our highways for tire traction and ice removal, or in other words, is trampled underfoot. In Christ's, in Christ's day, eating quality halite was hard to find, and was usually shipped in from remote locations. Salt truly is good for nothing when it is trampled underfoot and does render the ground sterile for quite some time. So there's more to it than that. If you mix your seed, you have no seed worth keeping and your seed is going to go out and poison the ground or poison the rest of your race, poison other people of your race. Because salt, when it's trampled underfoot, it renders the ground sterile. In Judges chapter 9, it is related that Abimelech, a son of Gideon, 
put down a revolt at Shechem, and he took the city and slew the people that were therein and beat down the city and sowed it with salt. Why did he do that? Because it would be decades, maybe centuries, before anybody could reestablish that city because they couldn't grow anything there. Ancient inscriptions suggest that the Assyrians and Hittites also had such a custom. Now Clifton concludes his discussion of salt. One remote place where salt was mined, today known as Hallstatt in Austria, was in operation an estimated 7,000 years ago, which includes the entire Roman period. Clifton showing how far they went to ship salt in that was edible from remote locations. And that's true. All through the Greek period, they were in search of salt mines. Some say 4,000 years, which is more like it, probably, but nevertheless a long time. As good quality halite salt preserves food, so pure genetics preserves one's race. Hallstatt, the city itself, must have originally been originally named for salt, as the Greek word for salt is hollis or hallis. Towns to the northwest of Hallstatt are called Halline, where there are famous salt mines known as the Salzburg Work Dernberg. And Salzburg, the German word for salt is Salz. So Salzburg is Salt Town, I guess, or Salt Mountain, I think. I forget. I really don't know much German at all, and it doesn't hang with me when I learn it. The German for salt is Salz, but the Latin word is Sal or Salus. So the German word for salt probably came from the Romans or from some common ancestor to both languages, but it's not Hebrew, not in the case of salt. The Hebrew word for salt is melek. And I just don't remember much German because I simply don't read it. I don't have to practice it, so I don't have time. Now Clifton continues from another entirely different perspective. Racism, biblical and U.S. Constitution. I don't know if I'd have gone here either, but he's making a good point here. All law, and I don't like this first point. It's not right, and I'll discuss that. All law in the United States of America is subject to the U.S. Constitution. And the first paragraph, preamble, sets the context for the rest of the document thusly. Now, that's what most Americans believe, but it's actually not true. While Clifton's premise seems good, I would rather believe that originally, and the documents fully prove this, originally the Constitution was intended to be subject to the laws of the states. Since when the Constitution was signed, the states were delegating only certain specific powers to the federal government and retaining all other powers and authority for themselves. This concept has been turned on its head over these last 240 years. Clifton continues by citing the preamble. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, 
and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish the Constitution for the United States of America. To that, Clifton writes, and thankfully that's about all we will read of the Constitution. Inasmuch as all of the 25 men who wrote and signed the United States Constitution, including the preamble above, were Caucasian European Americans, demands ourselves and our posterity that the beneficiaries also be Caucasian European Americans. Any additions to the Constitution, which include more than Caucasian European Americans, are illegal, or actually unconstitutional. The 16th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, whatever it is, is unconstitutional and should be summarily deleted. We already have immigration law in our preamble, and that's absolutely true. After all, Matthew chapter 18, verse 18 states, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever shall be you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Our forefathers made a binding constitutional pact with their descendants, and biblically, it is required of Yahweh to be kept. Only we whites are their posterity, and we expect it to be executed as written because we have firm legal standing. And actually, only a quarter of my ancestors were here when the Constitution was signed. So I guess three quarters of me has to go back to Europe, right? Clifton is correct in all of this. But America was subverted from the beginning. And when certain of the individual states did stand up for their rights in 1860 and withdrew from the Union, the pact having been violated, the result was a war which ended in tyranny as those who would subvert the intent of the founders had gotten the victory. For many of us, however, that war is not yet over. And we know that ultimately we shall prevail. As the motto says, Deo vindice, that's Latin, or God will vindicate. Clifton continues. Some may argue that we have an obligation to the former occupants of America. Of course we do not. But the Bible says otherwise in Joshua chapter 14, verse 9. And Moses swear on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed Yahweh my God. This was spoken by Moses, which at that time applied primarily to the land of Canaan. But previously, at Genesis 28:14, Yahweh promised Abraham, And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that it can be demonstrated, as Clifton has a parenthetical remark here, it can be demonstrated by saying all the families of the earth, it was speaking of all of the families of the children of Israel. This was the original promise of how far and wide the white descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would tread their feet.
It should be evident at the present time. There is no place left on the face of the earth that these offspring haven't trodden under their feet. Thus, the promise of Yahweh includes the entire world, which is manifest at Isaiah chapter 43, verses 5 through 8. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. And I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back, bring my sons and daughters from afar. And my daughters, I'm sorry, bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone that is called by thy name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yet I have made him bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Clifton would have done well there to cite another passage of Isaiah where it says that Israel would fill the face of the world with fruit. I'm sure he just didn't think of it at that time. But he says, who else but the pure white Caucasian Europeans does this refer to? Because of these promises and the prophecies of our future, we have become the most hated people on the face of the earth. And it is true that no other race branched out and had political control of the entire world at any time since the promises to Abraham. However, other prophecies are being fulfilled at this very time. And for the past hundred years, the children, the power of the children of Israel in the world has been severely decreased. This is the time where the prophet Daniel spoke of the scattering of the power of the holy people. And it will too will come to an end. In Isaiah chapter 27, the word of God says, he shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. And to a great extent, that's already been fulfilled. It was never fulfilled in the Jews. They were never nations and companies of nations. If Christ came so that not one word of the prophets would fail, then these words cannot fail. Yet they were spoken of by the people of Israel and Judah who were taken into captivity. This is who Isaiah is writing about. He's writing out the people, the people of Israel and Judah who were taken into captivity by the Assyrians by 700 BC, by the time of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And none of these people were ever called Jews. The denominational Christians should want to find out the identity of these people because these are the true sons and daughters of God. The only answer is what in the only answer is in what we call Christian identity. We know that the white nations of modern Europe descended from those same ancient Israelites. And Clifton continues in that regard. We are hated, both because of what the Bible declares and the phrase to ourselves and our posterity in the United States Constitution. That is why our U.S. Constitution has been under continual attack almost from the birth of our nation.
We suffer this hate because we have allowed aliens to be seated in government, in our government, as judges, legislators, and presidents. Here again, our Almighty gave us specific instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom Yahweh thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Stranger, Strong's number, Strong's number 5237, Nakri. This means everyone from the President of the United States down to the janitor of the county or city courthouse. There are several Hebrew words for stranger. This particular one is Strong's number 5237, Nakri. Strange in a variety of degrees and applications. Foreign, non-relative, adulterous, different. Translated in the King James Version as alien, foreigner, outlandish, strange. Clifton says, as far as I am concerned, this is a stranger of the very worst kind. And I've discussed this word at length recently. While Clifton is not quite correct in his understanding of the word knockery, it is perfectly clear that the children of Israel were never to set strangers, people of other races or nations, over them in office, in authority. And they would have nothing but trouble if they did. First century Judeans allowed Edomites to rule over them. And the result was the fear of the Jews expressed by the apostles of Christ if anyone perceived or admitted that he was the Messiah. Today, Christianity is once again being pushed out of society for those same reasons and by those same people, the Edomite Jews. Don't be surprised if the time comes that Christianity is banned. But in reality, Christianity is already banned because the government won't really let you practice it without attempting to dictate the terms of your religion to you. You become a security threat group. Not only Christianity, but any expression of love for pride, love for or pride in the white race by white men and women is also being demonized. There is a popular meme. I'll try to find a copy of it as I present the notes to this podcast. There is a popular meme in circulation based on screenshots of Google searches and Wikipedia results. Where at Wikipedia, terms such as black pride Asian pride, gay pride, or Hispanic pride, or its variants, are spoken of positively, described with positive attributes in glowing terms. But at the same time, white pride is derided as racist and hateful and it is ridiculed. So it's very clear right on Wikipedia that the world 
doesn't allow whites to have pride in their ethnicity. The only people who might get away with it one day a year are the Irish. Try celebrating Hitler's birthday in, pub in public. That's not going to happen. Not in most towns. You'll be stoned. Of these three, Clifton says, and he's speaking about these three passages that he has cited. Of these three, Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 20 and 22, is a prophecy of the United States, which was true at our beginning. He's referring to the rulers. He cited these three passages at the end of his last paragraph. See also 1 Samuel um, chapter 10, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, and Jeremiah chapter 30. And these are in relation to the future rulers of the children of Israel. And of course, he cited the warning in Deuteronomy that we should only set up members of our own race, of our own nation, as leaders and authority over us. So that's what he's meaning here, that Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 20 to 22 is also a prophecy of that and Clifton saying it's a prophecy of the United States, which was true at our beginning. But we have digressed to the bottom portion of dung in the outhouse of out of two doors, two hole backyard privy. Out of doors, two hole backyard privy. Clifton making tongue twisters. <sighs> Their children also citing Jeremiah chapter 30. Their children also shall be as aforetime, and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all that oppress them. Jeremiah chapter 30 is a promise of deliverance to the children of Israel, just before the promise of a new covenant for the same children of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 31. And I will punish all that oppress them, and their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them. And I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith Yahweh? And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. I can say a lot about that single passage, but this is Clifton's presentation. I've, I've already added too much to it. For their entire period in captivity, and here the children of Israel were in captivity, they were ruled over by foreign emperors or foreign kings. And even in modern Europe, their kings were often from other nations, such as the Normans or Saxons, who came from the continent to rule England, or the Habsburg dynasty of Austria, whose sons had ruled many nations in Europe. So perhaps this does describe America after its independence from the English king, but it may also describe many of the modern nations of Europe just as well, or, or other former colonies. And, and by that, I mean Australia, New Zealand, Canada. I'm, I'm not leaving those people out. There certainly are other prophecies which describe America, but in any event, the period of self-rule in the age of liberalism did not last very long, 
And now we are ruled by a different sort of tyrant, the international Jew, in the form of international banks and corporations which control every government, and of which the principles are the very descendants of those same Edomite Jews whom Christ had called the princes of this world. And that is the world which Christians must hate, because that world hates Christ as well as white Christians. Now Clifton continues with a list of the enemies of ancient Israel. But the descendants of these same people are also the enemies of today's Christians. The king and prophet, David, gave us a list of the enemies that hate us at Psalm 83, verses 1 to 18. Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult. And they that hate thee have lifted up the head. Now, Clifton made a, another error. This isn't a psalm of David. This is a psalm of Asaph. And I'll explain that momentarily. I don't know how Clifton did that. He did it twice in his paper. I apologize for that. I probably should have caught that eight years ago. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee, the tabernacles of Edom, and the Ishmaelites of Moab, and the Hagarenes, Gebal and Ammon, and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also is joined with them. They have hope in the children of Lot. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Jabin at the brook of Kisan, which is perished at Endor. They became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yeah, all their princes as Zebah and as Zalmunna, who said, let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. Oh, my God, make them like a wheel, as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burns a wood, and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Yahweh. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yet let them be put to shame and perish. That men may know that thou, whose name alone is Yahweh, art the most high over all the earth. Now, this is a psalm of Asaph, not of David. And if you listened to the context of the psalm, the children of Israel and Judah were already taken captive. Asaph was a prophet of the captivity. He wrote from the perspective of being in captivity. He's credited with, I believe, 12 or 13 of the Psalms explicitly in the preface, and this is one of them. It's, I don't know how Clifton missed that. 
<clears throat> but like I said, perhaps I could have caught it when I edited this, because I'm pretty sure I edited all his papers. I, I'm pretty sure I didn't miss any, but I may have had busy periods where I may not have. I don't remember, right? This is 2012, eight years ago. It is what it is. But this is ASAP. This is post-captivity. And we could see here that not only Edomites, but according to, a according to Asaph, Ishmaelites, people of Moab, Hagarenes, and, and I, I guess they would be Ishmaelites too. Maybe they called themselves after Hagar. I don't know. Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, the Ammon, that's the Ammonites, the brethren of the Moabites. Amalek are a branch of the Edomites. And the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre, who, who were probably estranged by that time. They had been Israelites originally, but now, so many centuries later, who knows? It was a merchant city, so it's just another cosmopolitan mess. And Asher also, that's not the tribe of Israel. That's Asher, the people of Assyria, is joined with them. So, so they have helped the children of Lot, which are Moab and Ammon, and, and all these people, as Asaph says here, after the deportations of Israel and Judah, had taken parts of Israel or cities of Israel for themselves. These are the people that were, or these were, some of these were among the people that were later converted by the Maccabees. The Jews are all the enemies of the ancient Israelites, mixed together with some people of Judah that mix their race, so they belong with the rest of them. They don't belong with the true Israelites who accepted Christianity. All of these nations had already mingled themselves with aliens, the Kenites, the Canaanites, the descendants of Cain, the Rephaim, the giants who were the Nephilim, descendants of the fallen angels, and other races of obscure origins that are not even explained in Scripture. Today, they are all Arabs and Jews and even other races. And they all stand against whites and against Christ, these are the same enemies from which the children of Israel had expressed an expectation of deliverance as the purpose of Christ was announced in Luke chapter 1, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. If you don't fit into that equation, you're not a Christian, no matter what you claim to believe. Once all of this biblical prophecy, this biblical history is properly understood, the inevitable trail leads back to Genesis chapter 3, as Clifton continues. The hate of the serpent versus the hate of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity or hate, and this is also Clifton's conclusion. And I will put enmity, hate, between thee, the serpent, 
and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Clifton responds. Here both the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are plural, but used collectively as singular types of seed. And in the case of the woman, include both the Adamic people and Christ. And that's absolutely true. The denominational Christians attempt to limit this seed of the woman to Christ. But the entire scripture, the entire Old Testament refutes that. In Revelation chapter 12, the words of Christ himself refutes that, where he explained in Revelation chapter 12 that after the Christ child was caught up into heaven, he himself was caught up into heaven, the dragon would be wroth. The dragon, equated with the serpent in Revelation chapter 12, would be wroth and go off to make war with the remnant of her seed, speaking of the woman. So Christ isn't the only seed. The woman has lots of seed. This hate of Genesis 3.15 is the same hate which the world has for Christians. It is the reason for the hate which the Jews had or have for Christians. And it is the reason why Christians should hate the world because it operates in accordance with the same princes of this world by whom Christ had meant to describe the Jews. The proof is in the words of Paul of Tarsus, as he also mentioned them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that had come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There you have it. The princes of the world are the Jews who crucified the Lord of glory. For that same reason, James wrote in chapter 4 of his epistle, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world that these Jews control is the enemy of God. If one professes to be a Christian, yet he is a friend of the world, he is not a Christian at all. Today's denominational Christians actually love the world. It's organized sports. It's entertainment. It's television and movies and games and other distractions. They embrace sodomites and fornicators. And worst of all, they worship Jews instead of Jesus. Hypocrisy is very difficult to admit, but to recognize it is the first step to repentance. If anybody hears this and says, oh, Jesus doesn't hate, Jesus is love. Read Revelation chapter 2 from verse 19. And we see that same word, I'm sorry, from verse 20. And we see that same word, fornication. Notwithstanding, speaking to the 
one of these seven churches, the church at Thuatira. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, race mixing, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. The worship of idols at that time, the pagan worship of idols included having sex with strangers. Baal worship was fertility worship. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Did Christ say that he was going to kill these people? No. They committed fornication, but he's not going to kill them. In verse chapter 23, I'm sorry, in verse 23 of chapter 2, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know. That's Jesus. I will kill her children with death. Why would Jesus kill the children? Jesus kills children. He doesn't love all the little children of the world. White, yellow, black, and brown. He loves white children. And the others, he throws into the lake of fire. And I will kill her children with death because they are products the products of fornication. The reason why Esau couldn't have the birthright, because Jesus hates, he hates those who violate his law, those commandments of that mean, wicked, um, mean-spirited, hateful God of the Old Testament. No, God is love. He loves his creation and he loves his law. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.